just from a standpoint of accountability, I, I told all of our staff, whatever service they were in this morning, all of our pastoral staff, I was going to make them stand and tell you all the places that they dropped off a message of hope this week, but I won't do that, so they don't have to sweat that, but I will uh, just, uh, from accountability, tell you Whole Hog, Baja Grill, uh, Drug Emporium, Simmons Bank, and a Little Rock police officer. Now, let me tell you a couple of things I learned this week. On more than one occasion, I was out with some other staff folks, and we were uh, eating, and all of a sudden it was like, who's going to share? And nobody had a track in their pocket. So there's one for you. If you're going to share a track, you need to be carrying it with you. Another thing I found out, though, is that if you see a policeman, and, and this one was sitting on our back parking lot, if you see a policeman sitting on a parking lot taking a break or working on his computer, man, they are prime targets. You just pull right up, you thank them for their service, tell them how much it means to you, and then give them a message of hope. So I hope that you're uh, taking opportunity to do that this week, and if you have uh, run through all of your cards, there are more out on the, uh, the countertops out in the lobby. Well, just to review, we started the book of Revelation last week. Uh, some of the things we, we covered last week is it is a book that is filled with symbolism, but that, that symbolism reveals literal events. It's a book that looks to the future. It's a book that reminds us that God is sovereign and, and he has the future. It's his. And it's a book that we are told that we will be blessed if we read and heed it, and I wanted to remind you again this week, as I probably will most weeks, that as we look to what's coming in the future, we need to be mindful of those who are not prepared for that future and of the knowledge we have that would help them. Well, the book of Revelation was likely written near the end of the first century A.D. It was written uh, to the, uh, or for the early church. You know that there are seven churches specifically mentioned here, the seven churches in Asia. Those certainly were not the only churches uh, that existed, probably not the only churches who had this letter read to them, but those seven were representative of the different regions where the gospel had spread by this time. Now, the early church was in a very uh, difficult position. We know that the church in Jerusalem was uh, persecuted by apostate Jews. We know that the church in the Gentile world, which is what these churches represented, uh, were living in the midst of a pagan culture. And in the midst of that uh, pagan, uh, godless culture, they stood against the idolatry. They stood against the immorality. And because of that, um, they were targeted as enemies of the world. And as we mentioned last week, chapters 4 through 22 uh, envision what's to come, a, a picture of a future time. Chapters 1 through 3 that we'll look at this week and the next two are, are more present tense. They were written to the church uh, at the time of, of John's writing, but there's certainly also, we're going to see some, some intended application for the church, not just then, but from then until now, all through the centuries. I want you to think for just a moment this morning about where we are as a church, as we think about what Revelation would say to us. And I don't mean just our body, but I mean the church globally. And as you think about that, you would have to admit that for all of us, uh, the times that we live in can be quite distressing. Most of the church in most of the world through the centuries has experienced severe persecution from the very beginning of these churches that we're looking at over the next several weeks. Think about the fact that the, the apostles were all rejected. Most all of them were martyred. Most uh, early believers who were part of the church were martyred. And we worry that being a witness to our faith in Jesus might cause a little bit of ridicule for us where we live. But it certainly 
is more difficult today even in the West. You know, because we uh, have not been trained by spiritual hardship, because most of us had never had to pay a price, a real price for following Jesus, uh, I would submit to you it's very easy to be distressed or frightened by the times we live in, especially as you look forward and wonder uh, what's to come. And and in the past few um, decades, certainly in, in the last two, certainly since the turn of the century, The church in the West, in our land, in our nation, the church has become more and more unwelcome in our land. Why? Because just like the early church, just like these churches in New Testament times, we're we're in the way. You see, the church, the true church, is, is an enemy of society. We're an enemy of man's great progress. And it's likely that the church in the West may soon catch up to our brothers and sisters in other places in the world. And and we need to understand that and be ready for that. We may soon enter a time much like what's, what's spoken about here in the New Testament. And it's easy to be discouraged by the state of the world. It's easy to be discouraged by the state of our country. We mentioned last week that we are approaching Revelation from the futurist view that the truths of Revelation tell us what is to come, and and I want us to see that what's written here doesn't apply just to the seven churches. We're going to be looking at the next two weeks in in chapters 2 and 3 in those letters to the churches uh, applies really to all of the body of Christ until he returns and these events are fulfilled. Chapters 1 through 3, we're we're going to glean instruction for the present. Chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see a, a vision of the glorified Christ, and what you're going to see is, is he's in the, in the very middle, he's in the midst of his church. With chapters 2 and 3 in these letters to churches in a pagan culture, they're words of instruction and words of encouragement and words of motivation. Those same words are needed for our church today and for the church in our time. And so as we look at these opening chapters, we need to think about the church, the, the global and our local church. We, we need to look at us. We need to ask some questions as we look at an uncertain future. What is the church going to be? What is our church going to be? When when we look at ourselves in the descriptions of the seven churches, where do we see ourselves? And are we going to be found faithful as the body of Christ? Well, let's read together this first chapter of Revelation that John wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Well, verse 1, he says, John states, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation about him, although we're going to see a picture of Christ right off the bat in this first chapter, but it is a revelation given by him. Why? To show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, the most important thing for us to see right off the bat is that this revelation originated with God. It's not John's words, it's God's words and God's authority. And I want to pause right there because I know there is so much on on television, on the internet. I'm going to pause right there and remind you that there are lots of self-proclaimed prophets who claim to speak for God out there that you can listen to and get entangled with. And I just want to remind you, you need to always be sure the words that you are hearing from any man's mouth, the words that you might read of anybody's opinion must be in line with and based on the authority of the word of God, or you better stay away from it. It's the revelation of God. Verse 3, we saw this, mentioned this last week, was, was the blessing. And he says, blessed are those who read a lot and those who hear. And remember, to hear is to listen with intent. You're, you're going to act on it. You're going to uh, obey it. He says, you're blessed if you keep what is written in it. What does that mean? It means to align your practices with what you see in the Word of God. And that's true of all of the Word of God, not just this one book. We don't read it just to feel good about reading it. We don't read it just to get some good ideas about how we might live life. We read it to align our life and align our practice with it to live in a way that honors our God. Why does he say we do that? For the time is near. In verse 3, in verse 1, he says, I'm telling you the things that must soon take place. Well, what, what does soon and near mean? Revelation was written more than 1,900 years ago. So does soon and, and near mean anything to us? If you look at the Greek, uh, one possible meaning of the word soon is, is rapid. In other words, when these things begin to take place, it's going to happen rapidly. And that's certainly true. 
But if you look at the word near, it, it seems to refer to a point in time. So I think given that, we have to take both the words soon and near and understand they're translated soon and near in the sense of timing. So again, we'd ask the question, how are these things written 1,900 years ago, soon and near? Well, first we have to understand Scripture, not from our timetable, but from God's timetable. 2 Peter 3, 8. To the Lord, a thousand years is as a what? Day, and a day is as a thousand years. He's not talking about our timetable, our our temporal timetable, but God's eternal timetable. But but a second thing that gives uh, enlightenment to the word soon and near here is the prophetic Viewpoint. John is, is writing prophetically, and the New Testament authors typically describe the time between Christ's two comings, when he came first, born as a baby, came first as a, as a lamb, came to make sacrifice for our sin, and then his second coming, when he comes as, as the conquering ruler and, and, and king and the judge. Between those two comings, the New Testament authors refer to that time as this present age. So this present age has been going on for over 2,000 years. And so as John writes these words soon and near, you have to understand that when you see words like that, when you see in Scripture the last days and the last hour, the last days and the last hour have been going on ever since Christ was resurrected and ascended to the Father. We don't know God's schedule, but we're to always be prepared understanding that the last days are imminent. The last days could happen at any moment, and these events that John is going to share with us here are impending because they're the next events on God's prophetic calendar. Nothing else, there's still prophecies in Scripture, end-time prophecies that have not been fulfilled, but there's nothing else that needs to be fulfilled before Christ comes for his church. Verse 4, John begins then with his greeting to the church. Look, there's no time limit. We're to always be expectant and ready. And now he greets the churches, the seven churches in Asia. By the way, this is not the continent Asia. You'd have to go back uh, to the map at at biblical times when this is written and understand that what's referred to as Asia is now modern-day Turkey. Asia was just a uh, a, a part of the Roman province, not the current present-day Asia. John greets the seven churches. It may have been... More, it was probably more than seven churches, as I said earlier, who heard this letter read. But John starts with these seven. He had a relationship with them. John, possibly before he was exiled to Patmos, these were churches that he visited and, and churches that he had influence over, exhorting and, and, and guiding them. Certainly, they are representative of all the churches, of the whole church. And what's his greeting? His greeting is grace and peace. Have you seen that one before anywhere in the, in the New Testament? Who else used that greeting? Apostle Paul. Grace and peace from God who is, who was, and who is to come. Just a great reminder from John about the favor and acceptance that God has extended to believers. We have peace with God not because of anything that we have done, but because he freely has offered his grace. He's given us his grace. And he's made us right with him. We've been reconciled and we have peace. Grace and peace from God who was, who is, who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, there is some uh, disagreement 
among scholars of, of what the seven spirits represent. Some would say it's the seven angels of the presence who are always uh, before the throne. They're chief among God's angels. Others would say that the seven spirits refers to the seven uh, characteristics or the sevenfold characteristics of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 11 and, and Zechariah 4. I don't know the answer. I would say the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, seems to fit the context. He's giving grace and peace, the greeting of grace and peace from the Father, from the Spirit, and from the Son. And what does he say about the Son? Look with me. He says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Now, there are many, many titles we could ascribe to Christ. I think John is referring to the fact here that he's a faithful witness because it's an encouragement to those who are suffering because of their witness for Christ. That's what's going on at the church at this point. It's, it's an encouragement to them. He's saying, look, remember Christ. When you suffer, remember Christ as your example. Remember that Christ, the power for suffering, the power to get through, is available from him and through him. By the way, let me, let me pause here and mention, I don't know if you remember from our study of the New Testament this last year, that the word for witness is the Greek word martes, from which we get the word martyr. A witness was one who was willing to proclaim what he knew to be true at whatever cost, even the cost of his own life. And so he's encouraging them, even as you face death for your witness, remember Christ, the faithful one. Remember Christ, he goes on, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. Firstborn of the dead, what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that Christ was the first to be resurrected, to be raised from the dead. If he's the first, it doesn't say he's the only. If he's the first, that means what? That there could be more who are resurrected from the dead. Who's he referring to? Those of us who are in Christ. He says, remember Christ is the firstborn from the dead, that even if you pay for your witness with your life, you're going to be resurrected to eternal life in Christ and with Christ. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's only one king and one ruler. Doesn't matter who the king of a country is. Doesn't matter who the dictator of a country is. Doesn't matter who the prime minister is. Doesn't matter who the president is. None of that matters. There's only one king and one ruler, and it's Lord Jesus Christ. And here's some great encouragement, and he goes on for those who are suffering for their faith. He reminds them, look, Jesus loved us so much that he freed us from our sins by his own blood. Jesus loved us so much that he broke the power of sin that was over us, that he reconciled us to God. That great act alone should convince us and remind us all of the time that Jesus continually loves us. What, what did Paul say in Romans? Paul said, how will God, who did not even spare his own son, not freely give us all things? We need to remember that when we're in difficulty, when we're in trial, suffering, and, and persecution as they were. Being reminded of his love should not only bring out in us great feelings of gratitude, but it should reawaken our commitment and our obligation to live for him no matter the cost to be loyal to him. Verse 6, not only that, he has made us a kingdom of priests. There is no higher honor, no higher calling, no higher vocation than to be a kingdom of priests for our God. He's made us a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? We have access to God. 
You remember in the Old Testament, only the priests could enter the Holy of Holies only on the Day of Atonement. No one else could go into the very presence of God until Jesus came. And at the moment of the crucifixion, when that, that, that veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, at that point, we gained access directly to the Father. You, if you're a child of God, if you've committed your life to Christ as a priest, you have access to God. And in that, you can intercede for others. We're a kingdom of priests. Our primary allegiance is, allegiance is to God and his kingdom, not to earthly rulers and earthly kingdoms. Why is John reminding them and us of these things? Verse 7. If you make notes in your Bible, I would underline this phrase. He's coming in the clouds. He's coming in the clouds. We always have to be prepared for that day living in light of that day. You know, if we would keep that day continually in mind every day, if that would be our, our waking thought, then we would live as he's called us to live. Verse 8. He's the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? Well, Alpha's the beginning, Omega's the ending of the Greek alphabet. It's just a reminder he was before all things. He will outlast all things. He, he is the one who's going to intervene in human history and affairs, and we are going to answer to him. He has always been and always will be. And so John is instructed to write what he sees to the seven churches. Now, you see the seven churches listed. I don't know that there's any particular significance to that order. Uh, very practically and pragmatically, if you were a messenger delivering this letter or carrying this book to the seven churches, that's probably the direction you would travel. It's kind of a semicircle about 25 to 50 miles from church to church. And from those seven churches, that letter could, could go out and be circulated to others. And so here's what he writes, verses 12 through 16, John's vision of the glorified Christ. Listen, it's hard to even imagine and picture John is trying his best to put the majestic, breathtaking vision of Christ into words. It may not stir your soul this morning, but let me assure you, when you are actually before Christ and you see him, it's going to take your breath away. Verse 12, he mentions the seven lampstands. The Lord himself will clarify that down in verse 20. Verse 13, he says, in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man. That's Christ. Look at the description here. First, he says he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. Who wore a long robe? Kings wore long robes. Prophets wore long robes, but Jesus' robe, the robe of the Son of Man, pictured here, the robe on Christ, is not just that of a, not just that of a prophet, not just that of a king, but he has a sash. It's the robe of a priest. And so John reminds us that the one we serve is not only the king of kings, he's not only the prophet, the word of God that is true and accurate, but he's also the priest, the one who has interceded for us and reconciled us to the Father. He says his hair is white like wool, like snow. Now, that doesn't mean he is aged prematurely, okay? Also doesn't mean the description I'm about to give applies to everyone with white hair like snow. But it refers, in the case of Christ, to his great dignity, but also his absolute purity. Remember in Isaiah 118, Isaiah was saying to, to God's people, to the Israelites, Come, God says, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are crimson, they shall be like 
wool. Wool and snow, symbolic of his absolute purity. He goes on, his eyes are like a flame. Those eyes, that eyes of flame, it's like it's a, a laser. And it can penetrate and look deep into our innermost being. Now, that can be very encouraging or that can be very frightening. He, he can penetrate what's happening in our lives and, and see our deceit and our hypocrisy. It also means when we think about his gaze penetrating that there's nothing happening in our lives that is unknown to God and that can be a very encouraging thing when we're going through difficulty and we feel all alone and we're not sure the Lord, the Lord cares or is attentive. No, his eyes are like a flame. They're like lasers that look deep into our innermost being. His feet are like burnished bronze. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes, first of all, strength and stability. Burnished bronze is incredibly strong, but it also symbolizes judgment. You see, a king's feet were symbolic of judgment because his subjects were beneath his feet. So what is he saying here? The one who stands in the midst of the churches with feet of burnished bronze, symbolizing strength, stability, and judgment, will be the one who stamps out sin in his church. He's not going to allow it. He's not going to allow his name to be tarnished, his church to be tarnished. He's going to stamp out sin in the church. John says he has a voice like the roar of many waters. Now, for John, on the Isle of Patmos, about five miles wide and ten miles long and a kind of a rocky outcropping, those waves were constantly hitting the rocks, and it was a loud noise. Maybe for us, it would be more like imagining what it would be like standing on the edge of Niagara Falls and just hearing that roar, a voice like the roar of many waters, a voice of great authority. And from his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. What's a sharp two-edged sword? You know it's the word of God. And it's also a word of judgment where judgment is needed. That two-edged sword was symbolic or, or referring to the sword that the Romans used. It had uh, a double edge and they used it to kill. And finally, he says his face is shining like the sun in full strength. Just an incredible reminder of the glory and power of the God we serve. And God has given this picture of the glorified Christ to remind the church, especially those who are living for him and suffering because of that, that he is all-powerful and he is almighty and he's got it. Verse 17. I can't imagine that any of us wouldn't respond just like John did in seeing that picture that we would just fall like dead men. I think when I read passages like this, I think of the song, I Can Only Imagine. You know that one? Imagining what we'll do when we're in the presence of Christ. I don't have to imagine it. I'm, I'm falling like a dead man. I'm going to be speechless. And Jesus, of course, calms John's fear. Because the image for those who are in Christ and, and honoring Christ and walking with Christ, this image is to encourage us and to strengthen us. It's to remind us that, that he's the ruler, that he's got it, he's sovereign, he's in charge. And specifically, he's standing here in chapter 1 in the midst of the church. It's a reminder that it's his church. It's his church. He will sustain it. He will guide it. He will make it what he wants it to be. Look what he reminds John in verses 17 and 18. I am first and last. I'm the living one. I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He possesses authority even over death. We don't have to worry with whatever we might struggle with, whatever we might come up against. Even if we're threatened with our very life, he has authority over death. 
And so he tells John, write three things. What you have seen, this vision you've been given, the things that are, that's coming in chapters 2 and 3 with the, the seven churches, and then the things that are to take place after this, chapter 4 through 22. And in verse 20, he explains, and you already know this, the symbolism of the lampstands and the stars. The lampstands are the church. The stars are the angels or the leaders of the church. What, what is that vision about? It's reminding us he's in the midst of the church. It's his church. We follow him. We don't follow a man. We don't follow our own ideas about how things ought to be done. We must follow him. He's in the midst of the church. He's going to support the church in trials and in persecutions. He's going to exhort us when we're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to, to back down and say, you know what, our society, they don't want to hear from us. We're going to be quiet. You know the problem with cancel culture when it comes to the church? We cancel ourselves. We back down out of cowardice. Someone was telling me just this week, they were listening to, uh, to Rush Limbaugh, and one of his callers asked, well, what's going to happen to the church? He said, well, I don't know what's going to happen to the church, but I'll tell you this, your pastors need to stop being spineless and speak the truth and preach the word. Amen is right. It's his church. And we see here in this picture that he is still right in the middle of it. He's present. He's going to support the church. It's his bride. He's not left us on our own. Church is symbolized by a lampstand. Why? Because the church is the light of the world. And listen, the darker it gets, the brighter the light will shine. I don't need my flashlight when I'm walking around outside during the day. I don't need my flashlight if I'm walking on a city street that has street lights. I don't need my flashlight when there's a full moon and stars. You don't need my flashlight when it's pitch black. The church is the light of the world, and the church shines the brightest in the darkness. You know, times could be distressing. Times can get even more distressing. We've got to remember from this picture that God is sovereign, that he's true, that he's faithful. You know what the application for today is? Application for today is for you not to miss this incredible picture of the Lord Jesus. Look at it with me again if you've got your copy of Scripture open. We have grace. We have peace. He's the firstborn of the dead. We're going to be resurrected along with him. He loves us so much, he freed us from our sins. He made us a kingdom of priests to his God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He has always been, he will always will be. Jesus himself is in the midst of his church. He's got on a long robe with a golden sash. He's a king, he's a prophet, he's also a priest who understands and knows us and our weaknesses and intercedes for us. The hairs of his head are white. He has great glory and dignity and, and purity is in him. His eyes are like the flame. He sees in us what needs to be rooted out and cut out. He also sees where we are and he's there with us. His feet are like burnished bronze. He's full of strength and full of power and he will judge sin. Why? Because he wants to slap us down? No, because he wants us to be pure in, in our living for him and our testimony is the body of Christ. His voice is like the roar of many waters. You know, when we hear his voice when we first get to heaven, that's probably going to knock us off our feet because of the authority that's there. He holds the seven stars. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God. His face is like the sun shining in full strength. What glory and power and majesty. And, and words, don't, words don't do it justice. Or we'd all be on our face right now. 
And he says to John, fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. What do you fear? Church, what are you doing? Time is near. It's coming in the clouds. Are we ready? And what about those who don't know the need to be ready?